Welcome to Politics Considered, the show in which we discuss some things political. I'm your host, Bill Gallagher. And so what we're seeing, I think, as the first step is a narrative and symbolic war. You have to be very aggressive. You have to fight on terms that you define. You have to create your own frame, your own language. And you have to be ruthless and brutal that the best strategy in the immediate term is the siege of the institutions. And that we should prepare for the fight. That was Christopher Rufo, the far-right crusader against diversity and inclusion and so-called liberal professors and students, and he is a main architect behind the anti-CRT wars that disrupted school board meetings. In that clip, he was speaking to an audience at the conservative Hillsdale College in 2022, and we will be discussing this broader, multi-pronged campaign that Rufo and others are part of on today's show. Here with me to discuss all of this and much more is Dr. Bradford Vivian, author of Campus Misinformation, The Real Threat to Free Speech in American Higher Education, which we will be discussing today. Dr. Vivian is a professor in the Department of Communication, Arts, and Sciences at Penn State University, where he was a past director of the Center for Democratic Deliberation. He has published numerous scholarly articles and books, too many for me to mention here. He's well-regarded in his field and has received numerous accolades. Welcome to the podcast, Brad. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. So what do you think of the clip that I played at the top of Mr. Rufo? Well, he's representative of a lot of the trends in what I call misinformation about colleges and universities that I'm concerned about. And with Rufo, very simply, I like to just make sure people understand his background and what interests he's representing when he speaks on these issues. He has no training or experience in teaching on a university campus. He has no training or experience in actually running one. Um, he was appointed to the Florida Board of Governors or whatnot, trustees that oversees Florida higher education policy and specifically New College in Florida. Why was he appointed by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis? He was appointed because he's a long time, in my term, propagandist through the Manhattan Institute about higher education. He's written a lot of things that are skewed, if not factually incorrect, generating a lot of cultural outrage about how higher education is allegedly out of control, all under the theme that because campuses now are proactively trying to welcome more diverse student populations and make them truly merit-based, not just serve elites, um, that that's somehow uh, um, an assault on what higher education should be in the country. Right. And I think people should know his name because not only has he been an architect, but he has a lot of money behind him. Mm -hmm. uh, Governor DeSantis has him sort of running New College now and turning it into sort of a little Hillsdale. But we'll talk about that later. Mm -hmm. So in your book, Campus Misinformation, The Real Threat to Free Speech in American Higher Education, you explore this topic, this sort of broader topic of what you call misinformation um, about college campuses. And can you just describe how you define this term, campus misinformation, this narrative that you're challenging? Mm -hmm. So for me, the basic practical scholarship-based definition of misinformation I use is when somebody takes something that's technically true and factual, but uses it to tell a larger story that's not true and factual. So college campuses have been real targets of this kind of misinformation for 
the past several years in U.S. media in particular. And the kinds of things I'm referring to are like, let's say that there is a poll circulating that says college students now tend to think this, uh, whatever it might be on a social or political issue. So that's just one poll. We don't know who administered it. We don't know who <laughs> took it. We don't know if it was done responsibly. There's just some data point out there that says, oh, this year, 6% more college students think this about a political issue. And so then you get these media cycles that say, well, now all college students have these radical or inane ideas or whatever it might be about the topic du jour. And that's not just a, that's just not a very responsible way to assess what actually goes on on college campuses, what students and professors actually think, because our educational system is so diverse, comprised of so many different institutions and student and faculty bodies. But nevertheless, it's very profitable now, and there's a lot of clickbait around this. And so people are enraged based on mis misinformation, not an actual fact-based, thorough discussion of what's going on. And some of those polls and surveys are just bogus. They're not even people on college campuses, but mm -hmm. um, but we'll talk about that more later. So um, I appreciate that sort of broad outline. In, in chapter one, I'm just going to quote you here. Quote, mm -hmm. you wrote, quote, ominous stories about universities kept appearing that bore no resemblance to the places I work, the students I taught, or the colleagues with whom I worked, end quote. And I certainly, as a teacher, relate to that. So can you just elaborate on these discrepancies and why you think they are often so detached from reality? Well, these discrepancies are very aggressively promoted. They are profitable for op-ed columnists. Um, people are now writing whole books about how allegedly colleges and universities have gone, quote-unquote, woke, which I still don't know what people mean by that term. Um, and so some anecdotes I share and it's appropriate to share anecdotes in the book because all of this discourse is very much anecdote driven. One of the anecdotes I share is in 2014, it was widely reported that one office at Oberlin College was recommending trigger warnings on all syllabi to warn students about sensitive content and what they would learn. The faculty voted that down. The faculty said, no, that's not a good policy. But the reporting sort of took it almost as if that had actually happened and that not just Oberlin, but thousands of different institutions now had these trigger warning mandates for university syllabi, which actually just isn't true. Those sorts of policy recommendations are few and far between. And as a university professor, I, I never talk about trigger warnings with anybody as a serious uh, thing on a syllabus. Nobody I know uses them. I'll, I'm going to talk about mm -hmm. that more later. So what do you believe are the underlying motivations for these individuals and groups? What are their motivations and maybe a little bit of the history behind it? Mm -hmm. So there's a history and a present. And I don't describe myself or say I'm arguing from a conservative, liberal or centrist position. But I think in terms of how people describe themselves, there's a longstanding conservative effort to describe universities in a particular way and increasingly a centrist one. And so I think the motivations on the one hand, just conservatives by their own description of their platform from the days of William F. Buckley in the 1950s on, we've had an uninterrupted series of decades where the message essentially stays the same. It's that colleges and universities are being overrun by liberals. And I think it's important to remember where that story first originated 
was at a time when higher education was still super elite, super restricted in the U.S. and super segregated. That narrative came out of a time when people didn't want universities to become more democratic and open and truly merit-based for everyone. So I just think that's a that's a political platform, and I'm not uh, I'm not criticizing it. I'm just saying that's just been there for decades. Right. And, and- and now, and well, you said messengers. Now there's a hell of a lot more messengers, and mm-hmm. they they are elitist, you know, in the columnists of the New York Times and such. And I I doubt many of them are actually in our classrooms. But I, I just want to read a quote from your book because I actually read this to my students. I just love this quote. Quote, insisting that intellectual diversity hinges on the obligatory inclusion of one or two partisan perspectives is a recipe for artificial viewpoint parody, not a truly diverse spectrum of social and political perspectives. Diversity defined as equal time among standard, oft-repeated liberal and conservative viewpoints is not diverse, end quote. So how do you define viewpoint diversity and how does it differ from real discrimination on college campuses? Well, this relates to the more recent centrist perspective I was speaking about is that this term viewpoint diversity has become very fashionable and it sounds good to a lot of people of many different political persuasions. Um, Viewpoint diversity is a legitimate topic in a lot of social sciences where people study how institutions and organizations make decisions based on okay, who's around the table and what opinions are they offering? But that social science research doesn't recommend, well, then we should have more of this type of opinion, uh, this stereotypical political opinion. Viewpoint diversity is a phrase that's been hijacked into a lot of seemingly centrist polemics and it's code. It's code for saying, well, universities have become inclusive and proactively desegregated enough. So we don't need to think about traditionally disadvantaged students making it more open, equal opportunity for education, which the Constitution says should be the case since Brown v. Board. Um, Viewpoint diversity is code for saying, well, we've had enough of that, and now we just need to focus on making campus discussions stereotypically liberal or conservative one-to-one talking points like you would have on a cable TV news show. And for me, that's just a misnomer about what actually happens on college campuses, that most of it can't be boiled down into those stereotypical positions. And it's just a way to actually dilute the quality of academic conversation that goes on in universities. Are these people like Christopher Rufo and Dinesh D'Souza, are they arguing for more viewpoint diversity? Like, in other words, if I were to ask Mr. Rufo, would he say that every time evolution is discussed, you need equal time for creationism? Is that what they mean? 100%. Or everything uh, in using the phrase presumes that most of what happens on colleges in terms of ideas and expression is stereotypically liberal. So we need to balance it out with 50% stereotypically conservative viewpoints. Rather Um, than just discussing sort of data-driven, you know, science and letting everybody say whatever, like in my classes. So they they sort of want- That's right. Like they want sort of like cable news where you have somebody, partisan Democrat, partisan Republican. Mm -hmm. But don't they really want to sort of, like Chris Rufo said, he wants to take over these institutions Mm -hmm. and make them conservative. So are there people within this movement, some that want 50-50 and some that want them to be conservative? 
I believe so. Well, I believe that this is the centrist appeal because it, it sounds fair. So some people are willing to say, you know, op-ed columnists, a lot of them will describe themselves as liberal and progressive and make these sorts of arguments for, quote unquote, greater diversity because they're presuming that that read of college campuses is correct, that there's just mostly liberal social and political ideas going on. That's been very poorly measured. That's a very specious claim. But I think the Rufos of the world want to use this as a Trojan horse. And recent legislation in numerous states bears that out. You'll find the phrase viewpoint diversity being used in hyper-partisan state legislatures now to censor certain educational materials. So the game is not about actually achieving a healthy balance of diverse viewpoints. It's about controlling conditions of speech and just using political stereotypes as a pretext to do that. Right. But it's sort of become a mainstream. So we have Rufo and Dinesh D'Souza and all these people, but it's also their argument is becoming mainstream because, as you mentioned in the mm -hmm. book, in the New York Times, I think, well, Ruth Marcus, I think she's with the Washington Post, but self-described liberal progressive op-ed writers are sort of arguing the same thing. I just wonder what you make of that. Well, I think there's a certain rhetorical appeal that these disingenuous groups have very effectively leveraged in saying we just need fairness and diversity of viewpoints. And if you keep that at a certain abstract level and never have to talk about what's actually taught and researched, you have an advantage in the public imagination because it's not as if op-ed columnists or readers are going to actually look up widely available course catalogs online and see, <laughs> oh, well, you're teaching, say, Chinese archaeology or medieval history and all these fields where 99% of the time there's no need to think about what the liberal or conservative viewpoint of the subject matter might be. So uh, when we keep it at the level of these slogans and abstractions, you can exploit that misunderstanding about what we actually teach and do. And you mentioned the example of CRT. This is a classic example. Critical race theory a few years ago, nobody had heard of this relatively obscure upper graduate level field of research on just some university campuses. And so they took that and they said, CRT has run amok and it's taking over all these institutions with these radical ideas and we need this fairness and balancing out these viewpoints. Nobody ever in the national media stopped to ask, do people really know what CRT is? And is it really the significant influence over a lot of institutions? It's not. Since you brought that up, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, when all this hullabaloo happened and Christopher Rufo and all these people were you know, saying that CRT, this was around COVID times, saying that CRT and, and parents were already anxious, you know, telling them that CRT is taught in public schools. Well, it isn't. And I did a lot of research on this. We couldn't find any evidence that it was. And what right. they were calling CRT is not CRT. And as you said, it is in law schools, it's often an elective. And I, I looked into all this curriculum and it's basically just, okay, there's systemic racism in the law, there's redlining, there's health disparities, all this stuff. You know, it's very simple. Yes. And, and it's really, it's not about CRT at that level. They'll use affirmative action or DEI and then it's CRT and then it's some other thing. It's these phrases, gender ideology and so forth. The whole thing is to just keep promoting the angry narrative that there's something radical and indoctrinating being taught in schools and not actually ask, is it representative? Are those ideas broadly shared and broadly taught and researched um, instead of being a relatively statistically, qualitatively small part of what happens on campuses. 
Yeah, you know, we you talked about this earlier about, you know, Buckley, and it seems to me like he might have been sincere, and there was an intellectual argument. But now politicians like Ron DeSantis, Governor DeSantis in Florida, and others have sort of taken on this crusade, and I'm not sure they have the same ideas or goals of Buckley. It just seems like it's politically expedient to gin up, you know, Republican primary voters. So I guess, would you agree that there's a lot of different motivations going on here? Yes, I would. And if I can bring in one thing about, say, the Rufos and DeSantis's and so forth, which is if you, people can look this up as they like, Christopher Rufo, again, does not have a history of acting in the public interest um, or for educational institutions. He is also a fellow right now at an organization called the Danube Institute. What is the Danube Institute? It is a think tank that is designed to promote Hungarian President Viktor Orban's ideas and policies abroad. And Viktor Orban's policies and ideas have been responsible, according to Western democratic nations, for eroding democracy and civil liberties in Hungary. And they're also based very much on President Vladimir Putin's policies in the Kremlin and Russia. So in both those cases, in countries like Hungary and Russia, we have leaders who want to still seem like they're operating a democracy, but they'll restrict elections, they restrict the free press, they want that Western legitimacy to seem like modern statesmen. But one thing they also do is they close down competing centers for truth, and that's universities. And so the Hungarian model, Rufo is literally kind of shuttling back and forth between Hungary and Florida to try and normalize the Hungarian model. What they're doing in Florida resembles very much one of the first things that Orban did in Hungary, which was target Central European University and ultimately shut it down because it was allegedly teaching all these radical forms of indoctrination. Yeah, I mean, the Orban model and totalitarians do this and they use terms like liberty, like moms for liberty demand action. And, you know, they, uh -huh. they're demanding that we ban books and kids can't learn about race and stuff. And they're doing it in the name of liberty. And it's really sort of totalitarian. And is, is that part of the strategy to, to cloak this in liberty and, and freedom? Yes. And I think there's there's a broader, if you will, set of interests coming together, which goes to your earlier question of why some op-ed columnists fall into this way of talking, as well as longtime political extremists, is because generally we're looking at an international set of actors who are claiming to defend, quote unquote, the Western way of life or Western civilization. And so you find people like an Orban or a Putin, they're, they're imitating uh, a lot of U.S., long-standing U.S. rhetoric about resisting what conservatives have long called the liberalization of the academy, which really means proactively promoting the fairness that everybody gets an equal shot and for them to be fully desegregated, again, by court law. And so a lot of people like Orban and Putin and other reactionaries in that part of the world have adopted this originally homegrown U.S. rhetoric to say, well, these Western nations are trying to infect the traditional Western culture in Hungary or Russia with these ideas that LGBTQ people should be treated equal, that people of color should have equal rights of citizenship, and that we shouldn't openly proselytize for extremist versions of religion in our schools. And so I think there's a kind of 
transatlantic crosstalk to try and make universities defenders of a very narrow definition of traditional Western culture, as opposed to universities being places where we truly, in an academic way, explore many diverse kinds of knowledge and viewpoints and forms of culture and experience and so forth, not for ideological purposes, but to learn about the world and ourselves. Right. So they're threatened by sort of a multicultural, secular education. And the way I see it, too, is a lot of these dictators, they don't want a well-educated, well-informed selectorate. Uh, because it it can challenge their um, ideas and status quo. And, uh, you know, I see this, you talked about um, going back to the past, uh, the good old days of, you know, elitism where white straight men ran everything. And I think you see that in MAGA, right? And there is a lot of disparity in terms of the the biggest cleavage in terms of red blue democrat republican how people vote is uh education levels so i see this as sort of a broader uh sort of anti-intellectual narrative do you know am i being too conspiratorial <laughs> no i don't think it's conspiratorial at all and i think it's it's pretty out in the open um there's a set of public figures now who can't be offended if we point out what they're saying and they're embracing. And so Rufo is is one. And I'd also, I'm, I didn't write about this in my book, but one who has gotten a lot of attention, he is um, a professor of political science at Notre Dame. His name is Patrick Deneen. And he at one point said, Victor Orban is the model now for American conservatism. He walked that back, but he will speak about this idea that he's not interested so much in uh, reform of our political process, but a kind of cultural revolution. And what he means by that is a return to a very traditional agrarian Western, only one version. I'm not making an anti-Christian point. I'm saying he's only for one very narrow version of what the right version of Christianity should be that should lead our nation. And time and time again, he'll talk about how universities now are threats, are they are the problem to restoring the sort of cultural hegemony of a traditional version of Western Christian culture. And so I think that's just out and out the program. Um, and that's on another way of saying sort of, if you flip the rock of the rhetoric that they're using, they're saying, we don't want multicultural democracy. We don't want truly egalitarian institutions where everybody is welcome and we're moving into the future, we want a kind of restoration of a nostalgic vision of Western, again, a narrow definition of Christian culture. And not to be too hyperbolic, but it is sort of a war. It's sort of a crusade. These There's a lot of money behind people like Rufo, and they are, I don't want to say arming students, but they, like Turning Point USA, I have a friend who's a faculty in business school. Mm -hmm. And he got an email from a student wanting him to sponsor a Turning Point USA student group. And mm -hmm. he asked me about it. I said, don't do this. Let's look into it. And the reason he'd email my friend in business, because all the poli sci people said no, because it wasn't legitimate. It was he wanted to uh, have legitimacy as a student group and then go in and sort of film professors, take things out of context, trickery, put it online, and then it's on Fox News that night. And this happens. Yes. And I think mm -hmm. that the media doesn't talk about this. And I'm, I don't know how widespread it is, but it is sort of part of this effort. Is that, have, do you, have you seen this or heard about it? 
Absolutely. Well, first off, to say, again, this idea of kind of um, a young, hyper-political group monitoring what happens in colleges and universities, again, that's there are versions of that in the countries I was describing. They're loyal to the regimes in power. And the idea is that they're supposed to act as media arms that either, quote-unquote, uncover or, as I would say, manufacture the idea that there's these radical things going on on college campuses. And it just then provides a media pretext for the state taking tighter and tighter control of those institutions, censoring them, restricting civil liberties, uh, which hurts everyone. Another thing to remember about organizations like Turning Point USA or YAF, for example, is that one, one thing that gets left out of the conversation, again, under the theme of misinformation, is that um, College campuses and universities have been very successful for conservative student groups. The pro-life movement in modern America would not be what it is without long-term political advocacy out in the open, protected by universities on behalf of conservative student groups. So, and that's, that's fine with me so far as a phenomenon goes. I don't have anything politically to say for or against that. I would just say, let's be fair. And when Turning Point USA says, you can't say anything conservative anymore on campuses. You can't have conservative speakers anymore. Turning Point USA makes very healthy revenue based on getting speakers onto college campuses on a weekly basis in this country. They have hundreds, thousands of student chapters in colleges as well as in public schools now. And so they're very well taken care of, if you will, from that regard. They don't suffer for equal time. And so um, that's their freedom if they can make that happen. And it's our freedom to say, whose interests are you representing? What is the truth of these matters? Uh, and, and what are you profiting off of? Yeah, there are a lot of conservative groups, and I'm happy to sponsor any kind of legitimate group. I think that what I've heard about Turning Point USA is like, I'll have a half an hour where I will show, you know, a video of Bill Buckley and... Mm -hmm. um, conservatives and present conservative viewpoints and talk about, um, you know, you get the idea. I have all George mm -hmm. Will, all this, and then I'll have a half an hour with Cornell West and whatever. And some student will, will without me right. knowing, videotape the part of Cornell West, put that out of context. And I don't know how often that happens, but I just want listeners to know that it does happen. Oh, absolutely. I think there's no doubt about that. And I, I would say in my own assessment, this kind of organization exists to create a feeling of surveillance that people are being watched and they will indeed, because all this is so anecdote driven, if they can't find an anecdote that makes institutions or faculty look bad, they'll edit one into existence for that reason. So unfortunately, then the question is how those organizations then drive op-eds in the Washington Post and the New York Times to say these weird ideological ideas have inaccurately taken over college campuses. Um, and so there's a real conversation then about the influence that those organizations have. Right. And this now is the this is what the Bill Maher show has become. <laughs> you know, every time I watch Bill Maher, I said, this is the last time. And then it's like an addiction. And I last week he had this same narrative. He'll find his staff, his writers will find something out of context. And he's just attacking. I don't know if you watch him, but he's sort of attacking colleges all the time and saying that mm -hmm. you know, people shouldn't even go to college anymore unless they need a certificate, like to be a dentist mm -hmm. or something. 
Yes, he's very much a source of mainstreaming and misinformation along the lines I describe. And I think he's proof then of, of something I talk about in my book, which is that something we've really seen the rise of in the U.S. media over the past decade or so uh, has been kind of the manufactured outrage industry about colleges and universities. This is a very bankable thing. It's very reliable. And it doesn't require knowing anything about how universities are actually run. It doesn't require any experience in being a professor, administrator, and so forth. In the case of people like Bill Maher, all it requires is citing some lazily edited out of context anecdote from Twitter uh, and turning it into a spectacle. And so there's a lot of great higher education investigative journalism that I would encourage people to consult on an ongoing basis. But we really have a kind of entertainment industry, a very cynical, outrage-inspired entertainment industry around colleges and universities. And I think that's just a really bad place to be in because our society does depend on these institutions and on having a good understanding of, of what they are and all their complexity and diversity. Right. And, you know, he when people complain, he says, well, I'm just a comedian. You know, I'm just an entertainer. But then he presents himself in this sort of like issues kind of show. And he has often he has some good guests, which is why I watch it. But lately he's had a lot of guests that have written these books that I have a long list of them. I might. Should I do that now? <laughs> sure. Go ahead. OK, so before the show, I was just Googling some of these books. And for every one of your book, there's like a hundred or a thousand of these other books. Mm -hmm. So there is uh, an organization called Campus Reform, and they have 10 books every conservative college student needs to read. And they're sort of arming students to argue. And so one of them, I'm not going to read all 10 of them, but one of them is Bullies, How the mm -hmm. Left's Culture of Fear and Intimidation Silences American by Ben Shapiro. Another one is Excuse Me, Professor by Lawrence Reed. Gun Control Myths by John Lott. Socialism Sucks <laughs> by, by Robert Lawson and Benjamin Powell. No, they're not being subtle there. Reasonable mm -hmm. Faith, Christian Truth and Apologetics by William Craig. And then, you know, there's all these other books like The Coddling of the American Mind, Diversity Delusion, Brutal Minds, The Dark World of Left-Leaning Brainwashing in Our Universities, and on and on. You know, Bill Maher calls himself the liberal. So it's not just, as to our point earlier, it's not just self-described yes. conservatives. Comedians play an interesting role here. Um, two of the groups that have really embraced the idea uh, that you can't say anything controversial anymore on college campuses are both traditionally liberal or centrist groups. They're comedians and they're op-ed writers. And so if we think, why are those groups circulating this narrative so fervently? Um, I don't think people might be aware. Both of those groups require to make their real money off their uh, forms of livelihood. They require speaking tours. And oftentimes those speaking tours are college campus based and they're actual booking agencies that will arrange this for people. So. Both of those professions, I think, have really kind of started to talk internally to themselves. Comedians and op-ed writers worried about a revenue stream, uh, being able to have lucrative speaking tours and engagements and sell books on college campuses. And they've adopted this label of free speech, but it's really not about free speech. It's about kind of protecting their uh, built-in revenue stream that they've traditionally enjoyed. 
So there's a lot of kind of animus coming from um, comedians as well as op-ed writers, I think, for that reason. Yeah, and yeah, to that point, Mar had Andrew Sullivan on, who's a conservative, and and he was saying that uh, another narrative is that, you know, we've been disinvited to universities and I've lost money. It's hard to quantify that. There's these websites where they chronicle people who've been disinvited. And mm-hmm. I think that that is, um, doesn't happen as much as it's hyped to happen. And the other thing is Sullivan actually probably has more speaking gigs. They're just at conservative universities. And I think he's just, they're just overplaying this to advance the narrative and play victimhood. Is that, do you agree with that? Well, um, several years ago, Andrew Sullivan, I think it was 19 or 20, he was a featured speaker on our campus. I was part of an organization that brought him. So I, I hope he felt treated very well. The, the talk went off fine and he seemed to have a good engagement with a lot of people. So yes, I think this is a trope. It's not a reality. And I talk in my book about this trope of disinvitation. I think it's a really dangerous one, actually. It depends on how you ask the question. So is it a good thing if college campuses are right and left disinviting people from established, from already set speaking engagements? No, that's probably not a good thing. But this disinvitation database that an organization called the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education maintains, it's not a, it's not a database about disinvitations. It's just a bunch of random anecdotes. And if we really want to be scientific about this, we have to ask, well, are those representative? What are we talking about statistically? And people have gone into this database that people like Sullivan cite very frequently to say they're no longer allowed on college campuses. And these disinvitations amount to like, I mean, it's, it is a scintilla of a percent of total speaking engagements on college campuses. What's, what's the wider reality? Across nearly 5,000 post-secondary institutions in the U.S., just about every week, an individual campus is going to host many different speakers by itself and then multiply that by a few thousand. The routine thing is that universities are most open to outside speakers compared to a lot of different institutions. And the university itself has a right to say on very select occasions, well, do we really want this person speaking on campus? Uh, is something going to go badly for academic purposes? Is it going to be about inciting violence through speech and so forth? We need to at least take a look at that. So the larger truth is that there are thousands of speakers across the ideological spectrum on college campuses every day in this country. That's the norm. And since you brought that up, you mentioned in your book that what is lost in the conversation is that universities have more free speech and opportunities for people from the outside to come and speak than anywhere else. I mean, even if you go, like, there, there are very few places. You can't go to private businesses. You can't go into Walmart and just have a, a platform and just speak for two hours. You That's can't, right. e- even in most cities, the permits are kind of hard to get to have like mm-hmm. uh, something. And so I remember I was at the University of Florida when Richard Spencer came and the University mm-hmm. of Florida paid him a lot of money. He's a white supremacist mm-hmm. and it disturbed the town. Now I'm all for free speech, but I don't know what the educational mission is because I was downtown and there were these sort of white supremacist guys with baseball bats. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of the shops had to shut down and, and people were in fear. There were a lot of law enforcement costs that weren't reimbursed. The town was, I mean, it was a, it was a frightening time mm-hmm. and his speech rights were protected mm-hmm. and the town was less protected. So I think 
yeah, I just don't see that narrative. I think that there's actually more access to a variety of speakers, even ones like like <laughs> Richard Spencer that probably wouldn't be allowed to speak in other places. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think the whole label of free speech there is being used as a dishonest pretext uh, for the reasons that you cite. And what I mean by that is that it all depends, again, how we ask the question. So is Andrew Sullivan losing a speaking engagement once in a while or Richard Spencer not being able to speak on any college campus he wants? Is that a good measure of whether First Amendment rights are protected on college campuses? Those are very isolated one-off events for people who are already in very privileged positions. And so what I find really disturbing is the degree to which those individuals, respectable and extremists alike, have normalized this idea that free speech means being free to give a speech in an elite position on a college campus, campus anytime you want. These are competitive merit-based uh, speaking engagements. They should be about fulfilling the academic uh, mission of the university. And I might, as a professor, disagree with a student group that wants to protest an invited speaker, but part of the work of free speech then is having a dialogue with people and saying, what are your concerns? And we also know that a lot of these individuals, like uh, Spencer, but to, uh, in fairness, Sullivan has taken up some kind of race science ideas lately in some of his columns. And so from that perspective, I don't think the question is, should we give you freedom to speak? The question is, how does somebody who is in one way or another advocating against the freedoms of disadvantaged populations, how does that help an educational institution? If somebody is coming on to say, in essence, women might not be equal to men, queer people might not be equal to heterosexual people, people from Muslim countries or Jewish people might not be in some way humanly equal to other kinds of populations. How does somebody incorrectly, inaccurately, unscientifically saying those things on a college campus advance either free speech or higher learning when their message is mostly about restricting the freedoms, including free speech, of other populations? So I don't find the appeal to free speech there genuine at all. And I think it's important to put it in context and ask these questions. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. And you mentioned in the book, you know, free speech is something that for the most part applies to everybody, First Amendment. And when Andrew Sullivan or Richard Spencer isn't invited or is disinvited to a university, they say that their free speech has been infringed on. But I don't have the right to speak at a college. You don't have the right. We don't, nobody has the right to just go speak. I'm not invited to speak. And now I could go on Bill Maher. He's not going to have me on. Probably not going to, he should have you on, actually. I think I'll email him. But, <laughs> you know, uh, we, we just don't have the right. And these people just come from this entitlement where they have the right to go speak and get paid. And if they're not, then it's a First Amendment issue. Uh, well, I think that um, we need to have a larger conversation about the misinterpretation of what free speech means or the literalization. I th if you ask the question, do college campuses, because of both state and federal law, protect First Amendment liberties as well or better than most other institutions in society? The answer is yes, they do. If you say, well, I don't think free speech is allowed anymore, that's an abstraction. That's a very subjective read if it means I have been precluded from giving 
what a speech that is going to be in essence hate speech on a college campus i think what they're arguing for whether they know it or not i don't want to get inside people's heads but the ask here seems to be to normalize the idea that people have a freedom as individuals already in privileged positions to capitalize both politically and financially off of giving hate or bigoted speech on college campuses and it's very important, I think, as well to say, what do universities and higher education, what do they run on? Their reason for being is not free speech and abstraction, it's academic freedom, which is something different. It's the freedom to teach what people want to teach if it's approved by that academic community and if students want to take it. Students have the freedom to seek out certain subject matters and speech that comes in and says, well, in essence, if this student community transgender or student communities of color or international students, they shouldn't be welcome on a college campus. That's interfering with their academic freedom. That's creating a hostile climate. Or if you come in and you say, sociology should be shut down, gender studies should be shut down. That's literally interfering with academic freedom and encouraging state censorship and taking people out of their livelihoods. So the baseline for universities is not this broad appeal to free speech. If it's going to run well in the most democratic, law-abiding fashion, it's academic freedom should be the mantra of the day. Yeah, and you mentioned sociology, and I just have to say, um, I got my undergraduate degree at the University of Florida in sociology, and uh, I mm -hmm. still know people that teach there, and Governor DeSantis, through his Board of Regents, just this week, basically, can they canceled sociology. Um, there is this core curriculum, and just for our listeners, mm -hmm. you know, everybody has to take certain social science credits, and you can choose sociology, anthropology, mm -hmm. uh, history, so on and so forth. And so basically, you can no longer take sociology in the state of Florida. It, it doesn't count. Yeah. And, you know, this is, I, I don't know, I just think this is part of the Orban model, which is kind of dangerous. It absolutely is. So I just want to tick through a thing, few things real quickly. Trigger warnings. I think we agree that you know, they're overhyped. I'm not, I haven't seen them too much. I, I just see it as information. When you listen to NPR, they, since the Me Too movement, they say this segment contains domestic mm -hmm. violence, um, or I've seen a lot, which is good. This segment is going to have mentions of suicide. And so if mm -hmm. I mention in my syllabus that we're going to talk about the horrors of war, it's just mm -hmm. information, right? And conservatives always wanted labels. And remember, I don't know if you remember when Tipper Gore had the campaign to label uh, rap oh, music yeah. and, and music's labeled. And conservatives always like labels until now. So I don't know where this came from, frankly. Well, I think it feeds into um, a larger narrative that universities are not just indoctrinating students, but they are, if you will, effeminizing them or making them weak. And the coddling of the American mind is a key source in this, again, what I call misinformation. And so the idea of a trigger warning has been used in some bizarre ways in the <laughs> research I uncovered. Um, it, trigger warning is, is sort of just one way of doing what you're describing in a classroom, which is that every time we deal with any kind of information, I should always put it in context. I should say, here's what you can expect to find. Here's what I want you to look for. And here's the role it serves in the class. And in a course that I might teach where we literally are reading 
Holocaust diaries. It's going to have immensely disturbing stuff. And I, so I should say, well, here's your kind of frame of mind in which to think about it. So I don't use trigger warnings on my soul, but I don't have an opinion about them. Um, it's just one way to do that. And so teachers are always kind of doing those contextual cues. But I think this idea of a trigger warning um, was about then just media people saying, well, this must mean that students don't want to encounter certain kinds of information and they want to have a free pass and be excused from viewing it or reading it because they're too weak, they're too effeminate, they're too overly emotional, which is just not how things happen in a classroom. Nobody's sort of excused based on their emotional whims from having to meet basic course requirements. This is a fantastical narrative but it does help to fuel sort of outrage and it appeals to even people who have stereotypically liberal or centrist nostalgia for universities which used to be much more disciplinary institutions um, and about you know sort of in-group out-group feelings as opposed to proactively trying to say well everybody should be in a good psychological state of mind to view this material for the purposes of learning if you don't want to actually do the work of thinking about learning about what really happens in classrooms, it's then easy to say, well, they're these trigger warning kids and they're overly sensitive and they're not actually learning anything and so forth. And to that point, I mean, this this narrative is that they are overly sensitive, but also that they're not thinking critically, that, mm -hmm. you know, they're just indoctrinated by liberal professors. And, you know, I asked students in my class about this the other day, and I had a lot of conservative students in my class, and they all just recoiled at this idea that older elites are looking down on them. I mean, you know, the reason that mm -hmm. they're concerned about, you know, they, they have these positions that would probably align with the Democratic Party, but they don't identify as liberal. They don't identify with either party. They just, you know, they're getting screwed by their employer. They're working two jobs at night. They deal with wage theft and they have LGBT friends. They are concerned about what's happening in Palestine. They, they just organically have adopted social justice and compassion viewpoints, and it is through their lived experience and also through their scholarly work. And I just really take issue with that narrative because it's not what I see. It's not, and, and they disagree with me, they argue with me, they come into the classroom with these ideas. It isn't for me. And I think, the, do you think that maybe the elites are just afraid that they're going to vote for, that they're going to adopt these views of Senator Warren or Senator Sanders, which I kind of see happening, although they're not voting. <laughs> so I, I guess it's the fear if they're mobilized and if they vote. Is that, do you think that's part of this? Um, I think it's a self-admitted part of it from certain political strategists. I've, I've definitely read people saying in, in various think tanks like the Goldwater Institute or whatnot, we have to take back control of universities. I, I reject that narrative myself. Universities are not what I would call liberalizing institutions, they're moderating ones. So if you come from a particular background, and for 16 weeks, for hours on end, you're going to be sitting in a class with people of very different backgrounds from yourself. It's going to be very hard to accuse them of being horrible people or fundamentally unequal for, again, weeks on end. You're going to have to work with people. You're going to have to talk through ideas. And I think universities are the most open moderating spaces among several that we have for doing that now. So. In addition to some political strategists who, who then worry that, yes, you're going to have a moderation of people's ideological positions, I think it's also there's a lot of nostalgia about universities in this country that doesn't match with the reality of the common student. 
the average student is not an Ivy League student. The average student is not particularly from a wealthy, privileged background. The average student is somebody who's had to partially work their way through college, who's probably facing some sort of family adversity or maybe even mental health issue and so forth, various academic challenges. And that's a reflection that the system of education that we have now in the country is more open and inclusive than it ever has been, extending critical thinking opportunities to more people than ever. But whatever you stereotypically identify with, conservative, liberal, or elite, if you share the baseline of, well, I was part of this Ivy League institute, uh, institution, and when I was in college, we didn't talk that way, or we didn't have these ideas, that seems to be a sort of toxic nostalgia, I would say, as if we should return to those old days when these institutions were much more elitist and closed to many of the students that you teach and I teach, I would suspect. Yeah, and and you know to your earlier point, I something like I don't know ninety something percent, ideology doesn't come into play with geology, with rocks or math or physics. Right. It's probably just I don't know probably one percent. My class, political science, probably maybe your class, but most classes and and a lot of the one these hot button ones like women's studies, they're electives, and now they're banned in Florida. But I mean, you know, so that is. Part of the mythology. And mm -hmm. since you mentioned marginalized students, in your book, you challenge the premise that supporting these marginalized student groups inherently harms historically privileged ones. Can you just elaborate on that? Well, on the one hand, uh, there is a lot of social scientific research and data that I cite, which goes to saying, so a, a program like Affirmative Action, this isn't arguing for all aspects of it myself, but I'm just saying it's pretty well documented. Um, that school systems which are fully desegregated with affirmative steps benefit all students. So it's not just students of color who historically have been denied. Um, they're not getting a free pass or a hand up into it. Uh, there's proactive measures to say everybody should be included and everybody's academic perspective should be welcome. So on the one hand, there's a lot of data to say that just benefits learning communities in general, including it's been shown students from privileged white backgrounds. But even more generally, this goes to creating those sorts of programs, whatever their merits, uh, however well they're written and implemented on a case-by-case -case basis, a philosophy that says we should have equal educational opportunity and continue desegregating these institutions is a way of actively promoting more rigorous learning and knowledge. Um, if you're going to an institution, well, excuse me, in the, in the old days, if you're going to an institution where you were just learning one type of literature, just w learning one version of history, only certain kinds of philosophical ideas. And that's what the Ivy League used to be. It was to protect the ideas and academic backgrounds of privileged classes that they were already used to. But now we're in institutions where you do have the choice, and I emphasize choice, nobody makes you take gender studies. Nobody makes you take African-American history. These are choice-based institutions. But if you want to learn a lot from many different perspectives, you've never been in a better place than in U.S. universities now. The amount of choice and the range of legitimate forms of knowledge is higher than it's ever been. But these stories and fabrications would distract from that fact. So, Brad, you have a chapter where you talked about First Amendment hardball. So, and I mentioned Moms for Liberty demand action. And, and so, and I think they do this. Can you just talk about what First Amendment hardball is and how it relates to all of this? Sure. I admittedly appropriated this phrase from some, some 
some political science literature. And that phrase, as it's used in that field, my understanding is, is when, say, you have a political party that is operating technically according to what the Constitution says it can do, but in a way where they take over a constitutional rule and just make it their own and make it harder for other political parties to do something with that same constitutional rule. And I see uh, a lot of that going on with these redefinitions of free speech that the claim, again, has been uh, manufactured that universities and colleges don't protect free speech anymore. But increasingly on college campuses, it's more democratic where students, faculty have a voice in who gets to speak on those campuses. And so they might use their First Amendment rights as they can and should if they want, whatever persuasion they belong to, to say, we object to this kind of speech or we don't feel that this is good for the academic learning environment. Um, First Amendment hardball is the philosophy that comes in and says, well, if you protest, you've sacrificed your First Amendment rights. If you don't use your First Amendment liberties in the right way, you might be psychologically deluded. And this is this is essentially kind of the not too subtle idea of Lukanoff and Haidt's coddling of the American mind. They say that because certain student groups now want to protest for certain ideas, again, that's a form of free speech. They're shutting down others' free speech. It's not a zero-sum game. They're contributing in their own way. But First Amendment hardball would say, well, it's for some, but not others, according to these prescribed rules. Yeah, sort of using the First Amendment as a club. And, okay, so you conclude um, your book with a chapter called Campus Information, and you discuss DEI initiatives. Let me just, um, let me read this quote from your book. Um, It's a statement by the University of Oklahoma. Quote, at OU, we will not accept the false choice of supporting either free speech or diversity. They are both essential. When we protect one, we protect and strengthen the other. So can you just explain how DEI is not limited to liberal orthodoxy? And you talk about how conservative religious uh, universities use it. Yeah, there's a fairly large consortium of Bible-based universities that... um Oral Roberts is one, for example, that have DEI-like principles. Uh, University of Oklahoma has it. University of Mississippi has it. Also, University of Notre Dame has one. Hillsdale has a statement itself about welcoming students from diverse communities. But then in the next paragraph, interestingly, it turns around and it says, and we're going to teach fundamentalist truth and we don't want to liberalize our institution. But they, they do make statements about being inclusive and diverse, which I find interesting. The larger point there is that many different kinds of institutions use this sort of language to say, we want to be diverse, equitable, and inclusive for student groups of many kinds. And the one I'd like to focus on is University of Mississippi. Why is University of Mississippi doing that? And why have they, on a bipartisan basis, instituted these sorts of policies? It's because University of Mississippi was home to what some scholars call a forgotten insurrection in modern U.S. political history when just one African-American student, James Meredith, uh, desegregated that institution in the mid-60s. You had large mass riots, uh, tens of thousands of predominantly white people from the community and on campus trying to take over that institution, so much so the National Guard had to be called in by President Kennedy. So these institutions have adopted these policies not as sort of this knee-jerk ideological position, but in order to say, we know these institutions have an ardently discriminatory past, 
and we want to correct that for the future. Again, not for ideological purposes, but because not everybody gets to learn and not all forms of knowledge are actually pursued openly if you don't take those measures. Um, so there is this refrain that we hear um, and at the gym, I try not to look at the Fox News. I mean, it's good that I look at it since I teach this, but Fox News regularly has sort of a running a title across a screen that says universities in crisis or, some, or something like that. So um, is are there legitimate concerns about college campuses today? And what are the real crisis and what are your solutions to this? So I try and say in my book, there is absolutely a free speech crisis, but it's not about invited speakers. It's not about trigger warnings or people using phrases like safe spaces. It's a, uh, it's a pretty well-documented pattern of state legislatures trying to determine for several years now what can be taught and how it can be taught and targeting different programs for ideological reasons. And so what's happening in Florida is really only the spearhead of that. What Florida is doing is it's censoring certain forms of educational content, driving professors, trying to drive certain professors out of um, their faculty positions and whatnot. And this is reflected in a historically significant, significant wave of censorship bills we are seeing in multiple state legislatures now that say, you can't teach this, or you have to, if you're gonna teach slavery or the Holocaust, you need to teach both sides. So it comes in the form of saying what you can't teach, but also in the form of what you must teach. Um, even if those teachings are say, um, anti-climate science or against facts, well-documented facts about slavery and so forth. And so these are all assaults on academic freedom and whatnot. And I think that's the real free speech crisis is that these uh, claims about viewpoint diversity and uh, coddled undergraduates, they're really just manufactured pretexts so as to be able to pass those measures. Okay, I always like to end on a positive note. Sometimes it's hard, but um, what can we all do that is constructive? And is there anything, hap is there anything happening now that gives you optimism? Well, in a way, I think it's important to remember that these attacks are fierce now because universities in many ways there's still so long to go there's so, so so far to go but they are more desegregated than they've ever been in u.s history they're more democratically run than they've ever been um, the system overall in the u.s is more kind of diverse not in terms of only populations but different academic subject matters and specialties um, the u.s really many professions run on the larger infrastructure of what colleges and universities provide, such as nursing, engineering, and so forth, um, much of this country wouldn't run nearly as effectively without the community college system we have, um, nursing schools, things like this. So they're really essential and important. And so the kind of silver lining is that if you scratch beneath the surface of some of these narratives and actually spend a little time on an average college campus, the reality becomes different very quickly. And so I think the, the notion is of how to make investment in higher education uh, kind of public calling again, to recognize that these are already institutions which provide a lot of wonderful things for us, um, and that to reinvest in them to keep sort of pushing forward the message of equal opportunity education 
can have really seismic effects that benefit the country overall, even if you're not currently a student or a faculty member. So my hope is that that kind of, um, the already positive attributes and the fact that there's so much more potential to be realized can break through. Well, I hope everybody reads your book. It, one of the things I loved about your book is how readable it was. It is well-referenced and scholarly, but it is readable for a wide audience. And in this sea of, I mentioned those books, there's hundreds of, hundreds of books with this disinformation. So yeah. I, I just feel like your book is a breath of fresh air and I really appreciate it. Um, thank you so much, Brad, for being with us today. I really, really appreciate it. That's great. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. That wraps up our show. Until next time, be kind to yourself and others.